For those who pick the Bible up like a novel, disappointment kicks in around halfway through the book of Exodus. Instead of the action rising back up to a nail-biting crescendo after the tabernacle has been built, the Bible now spends an entire book detailing the various sacrifices, laws and other regulations which God expects his people to follow. This, listeners, is the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is about as religious as the Bible gets. God has already shared with Moses the most important laws that he expects his people to keep. However, he's not finished. Named after the Levites who become God's chosen priests, the book unpacks a list of rules that provides a code of conduct, allowing millions of people to coexist amicably, particularly in the harsh surroundings of the Sinai Desert. Many are also to ensure that the people behave in an appropriate way towards the God who not only created them, but has successfully led them to freedom. There is no point in giving any plot spoilers to Leviticus, for the simple reason there is no plot. Aside from a couple of fleeting moments of excitement, nothing happens, which for geeks like me make it all the more fascinating. Leviticus contains no less than 251 laws, but as anyone who believes will tell you, these decrees aren't just God making life difficult for his people. They're put in place to keep the Israelites holy, or in other words, set apart from other tribal groups and pagan nations. Central to the book is the apparent need by God to make his people identifiably different from everyone else. By creating a nation apart, he will be seen as a God who stands apart from other gods. And though his diktats may seem hardline, Leviticus believes that a demarcation needs to be made between Israel and the rest of the world. Leviticus is a hard book to read. Its laws are detailed and sometimes repetitive. It also contains some of the Bible's sternest condemnation of homosexuality. At the same time, it also provides a fascinating insight into life in a late Bronze Age agrarian society, and many of the laws laid down in the desert are still followed by millions of people today. As for the book's author, they are sadly lost to history. Scholars agree that Leviticus was probably pulled together during the Jews' time in Persia between the 6th and 4th centuries BC. However, they believe that the book has a long comet's tale and that work on it began much earlier in the Jews' history. If so, this would make it the oldest of the five books in the Pentateuch. And so, seatbelts on, we're about to head into Season 3. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible Episode 27, A Torn Bird. Well, we've made it through two books of the Bible. Thanks for sticking with us, it's been quite a journey, and hopefully you're seeing why I am such a fan of this incredible book, regardless of your religious beliefs. For those of you new here, I'm an advertising creative director who appears to have nothing better to do in his spare time than demystify and dereligionize the world's best-selling book. The Bible I have at hand is the New International Version UK Study Bible, published by Zondervan. Right, let's jump into book three. God knows that his people are far from perfect and that they need to make up for all the wrong they have done. To let God know that they are sorry for breaking any of his multitude of laws and that they are thankful for his benign guidance over their lives, the Israelites take something that has value to them and agree to do without it. The first seven chapters of Leviticus detail five kinds of offering, each of which serves a slightly different purpose. God has already alluded to these sacrifices and offerings when describing the tabernacle structure and the role of his priests, but it is here in Leviticus that he goes into granular detail. If the burnt offering is a bull, it needs to be a pristine male, which should be presented to God at the entrance of the tent. 
According to Leviticus, doing this makes it acceptable to God. The owner of the bull places a hand on its head, and the person's guilt is believed to transfer to the animal, a clearance of spiritual debt that is known as atonement. They are then to slaughter the animal, after which the priest should take its blood and splash it against the altar. The bull must then be skinned, cut into pieces, and laid by Aaron's sons on the altar on which a wood fire is blazing. These pieces include the head and the fat, and the priests are to wash the internal organs and the legs to remove any dirt before laying these on the fire too. God repeats his promise that doing this will produce what he calls a pleasing aroma, a refrain that is used to describe every sacrifice made on the altar. If the animal being sacrificed is a sheep or a goat, the process is the same, only God specifies that it should be slaughtered north of the altar. The sacred fire is approached from the south, the basin is to the west, and the ash and refuse pile is to the east, making the north the most convenient place to butcher the animals. There is also an option to sacrifice a bird, in which case this should be a young dove or pigeon. The priest should bring the bird to the altar and wring its neck, pulling off the head which is thrown on the fire. The blood should then be drained and the crop and feathers removed and thrown on the trash pile. The priest must tear the bird open by the wings, being careful not to divide it completely, after which it is to be laid on the altar. While the burnt offerings are to apologise for human shortfalls, grain offerings are also welcome at the tabernacle. Flour brought to the priest needs to be of the finest grade and mixed in with olive oil and incense. The priest should then take a handful and throw this on the altar fire and the offering is referred to as a memorial. It's unclear whether this involves the person remembering God's goodness in providing them with food or to remind God of his promise to look after his people, or both. Once the offering has been made, the priests can eat what is left. Rather than bring flour, there is an option to bring baked bread. If thick loaves are offered, these should be baked with olive oil and if they are thin, they should have the oil brushed on them. Either way, they cannot contain yeast. Loaves made of flour and olive oil can be baked on a flat pan and then crumbled. More oil is added before the loaves can be offered to God. They can also be fried in a pan of oil, after which the priest takes them to the altar. He will take enough to make the memorial offerings and keep the rest for himself and the other priests to enjoy later. Readers are assured that the grain brought to the tabernacle is among the holiest offerings made to God and they are reminded that honey is as forbidden as yeast when it comes to the bread brought to the priests. It seems strange given that the carrot in front of the donkey for the Israelites is the promise of a land of milk and honey, but bees are actually seen as unclean animals, hence the ban on honey at the altar. If the Israelites are offering their first fruits, the first and best produce from their harvest, yeast and honey are fine, but these must not be burned on the altar. The assumption is that they should be kept aside for the priests. God adds that salt should be an essential part of every sacrifice, meat or otherwise. He describes it as the salt of the covenant, which might mean that leaving salt out of an offering is as bad as neglecting to make the offerings in the first place. Salt has long played an important symbolic role in the Near East. In late 19th century Arab cultures, men who are entering a covenant or other solemn agreement place salt on the blade of a sword and each put a little into his mouth. Doing this makes the men blood relations and so they remain faithful to each other even when their lives are in danger. Pure grain can also be brought as a first fruits offering. The grain heads must be crushed and roasted before adding oil and incense. In the Near East, stalks of wheat bound up into small bundles are still roasted on a fire and their grains eaten. 
and it is grains like these that are offered at the altar, mixed with oil and incense. What's good for God appears to be good for his priests, and the offerings mean that these men who have no time to farm and no income to buy food are still able to enjoy the best of Israel's produce as payment for their work. Other reasons to make offerings to God appear to be to praise him and to apologise for unintentional wrongdoings. God explains the correct process for making what he describes as fellowship offerings. These are also referred to in the Bible as peace offerings and thank offerings. The reason for making these isn't given until later on in the book. What matters here is how the sacrifices should be made. For the record, fellowship offerings are given to praise God and thank him for the good that he has done. They take the form of a sacrificed animal that is cooked in the fire, then eaten by the priests and the people who are offering the dead creature. Cakes are also used, and the only rule is that some of the food must be thrown into the fire for God, and the rest must be eaten on the same day. Again, God begins with cattle, as herd animals have more value than flock animals. To sacrifice an ox is a big deal. This time, the animal needn't be a male, but it can't have any defect, and like the burnt offering, a hand is to be placed on the beast's head at the entrance to the tabernacle, before it is slaughtered. The priest should then splash its blood on the sides of the altar. God's share is seen as the internal organs and the fat that covers them. This includes the kidneys and part of the liver, possibly the membrane covering the liver known as the peritoneum, and the priests are to burn these on the altar. The same process should be followed if the animal to be sacrificed as a goat or a sheep. If it is a lamb, the fatty tail is added to the internal organs, which are placed on the fire. No one is to eat any blood or fat from the offerings, and this is a rule which God expects the Israelites to stick to throughout the generations. offerings are given to make up for the sins that the Israelites don't even realise they have committed. A priest who sins must take a young bull and kill it the usual way before taking its blood into the tabernacle and splashing it with his finger seven times towards God, which in physical terms means towards the curtain which is drawn across the most holy place. While he is in the tent, the priest is to place some of the blood on each of the four horns of the altar of incense before taking it back outside and pouring the rest of the bowl at the base of the altar where the burnt offerings are made. The fat and kidneys are to be burned here, while the head, hide, intestines and other meat are to be taken to a designated place where the ashes from the altar are thrown. Here they should be burned on a wood fire. If the community sins unintentionally, they should take a young bull to the tabernacle as soon as they realise their mistake. Here, Israel's leaders are to place their hands on the animal's head, and the same process is followed as when a priest sins. For leaders who sin without realising it, a male goat is to be sacrificed, and the blood taken into the tabernacle just like it is with the bulls. However, there's no sprinkling this time, the blood is simply daubed on the horns of the altar of incense by a priest. The rest of the blood is poured out at the main altar and the fat thrown on the fire, at which point the leader can consider themselves forgiven. What happens to the rest of the goat isn't mentioned. Should a regular Israelite sin, the process is exactly the same as for a leader, except a female goat or lamb is used for the sacrifice. All in all, it's a pretty gory process, with plenty of blood, entrails and butchery. However, the end result is that God is honoured and sin removed, which appears to make the effort and the mess worthwhile. Having explained how a person absolves themselves from guilt when they sin accidentally, Leviticus now unpacks what kinds of behaviour these sacrifices make good. 
Unintentional sins committed by the Israelites include not stepping forward as a witness when they have information that will assist a court case. Others are unwittingly touching an unclean animal, person or personal item, or casually making an oath that commits them to something they had no intention of doing. As soon as anyone realises they have transgressed in this way, they should admit what they have done, grab a female goat or lamb, and let the priest clean the slate for them at the tabernacle. Those who cannot afford goats or lambs should bring two doves or young pigeons, one to make good their status with God, and the other to be used as a burnt offering to assure God that they are devoted to him. The bird that is killed to erase the person's sin is beheaded, some of its blood splashed against the altar, and the rest drained. The other bird is prepared and cooked in the way described earlier in the book, after which the person can consider themselves absolved. If even the price of two birds is too much, the guilty party should bring the priest three and a half pounds of fine flour, making sure that no oil or incense is added. The sin offering needs to be a plain and unembellished one. A priest will take a handful to burn, and readers are told that this will take away the person's sin. The rest of the flour is for the priest to keep. If anyone accidentally fails to offer the correct sacrifice or bring their first fruits or other gift to God, they should arrive at the tabernacle with an unblemished ram of an appropriate value in order to have their guilt removed. They must also add in an extra fifth of the animal's worth in silver and give this to the priest in order to be forgiven. Similarly, if someone breaks one of God's laws unintentionally, they are to bring a ram whose death will erase their guilt. These all appear to be misdemeanours that might be seen more as simple omissions rather than deliberate acts of rebellion. However, God knows that his people will also lie, cheat and steal, and these crimes also need dealing with. The list which he gives to Moses includes lying to neighbours about items of value that have been entrusted to them and which are now missing, cheating, finding lost property and keeping it, or lying to cover up other people's crimes. Once the guilty parties have a moment of clarity and accept that what they have done is offensive to God, they must return whatever it is they have taken unlawfully or come clean about the false information which they have given. On the day that they make their guilt offering to God, they must also return the goods to their rightful owner, throwing in an extra fifth of their value. The extra money that needs to be given is actually a quarter, not a fifth. The sacrificed animal is seen as four parts out of five, so the fifth part is actually an additional fourth. The guilt offering should be an unblemished ram, and once this is sacrificed, the person is considered guilt-free. It's easy to see these offerings as barbaric, ritualistic and arbitrary, but they keep the Israelites accountable. By sacrificing something of value, such as an ox or a sheep, they're acknowledging the importance of pleasing God. It also underlines how a society depends on everyone pulling together in order to succeed. Without understanding the system of Jewish sacrifice, it's also impossible to make sense of why Christians see Jesus' death on a cross as so significant. While the Old Testament Jews repeatedly sacrifice animals to take away their guilt, Jesus takes on the role of the ox, sheep, goat or pigeon, and his one-off sacrifice is seen as absolving all people of all guilt for all time. Having run through the reasons for the offerings, God now advises his priests on the correct protocol when preparing them. Moses is told to pass on some important information about the tabernacle sacrifices to his brother and nephews. The meat and bread placed on the altar fire must remain there all night, and the fire must be kept alight. The ritual for removing the ashes involves the priest donning clean clothes before placing the ash beside the altar. He should then put on a different set of clothes before taking the ash to the designated pile outside the camp. 
According to God, the fire must burn continuously, with the priests adding fresh wood every morning and arranging the meat and the fatty part of the sacrificed animals on it. Once the priests have added oil and incense to the grain offerings which are to be burned on the altar, the rest should be eaten by them in the tabernacle courtyard. The only stipulation is that the bread mustn't contain yeast. Any male descendant of Aaron is allowed to eat it, and God explains that this provision is to be passed from generation to generation, adding that whatever touches the bread becomes holy. A special grain offering is to be made on the day that Aaron or any subsequent high priest is ordained. They are to take three and a half pounds of fine flour, mix it with oil, bake it on a flat pan, then crumble it on the fire. This ceremony should be officiated by the high priest's heir, and the bread should be completely burned. No grain offering made on behalf of a priest may be eaten, God says. The sense is that the offering is between the priest and God, so there is no priest's share like there is when the offering is made by a third party. According to God, meat sacrificed as sin offerings may be eaten by the officiating priest in the tabernacle courtyard. Anything that touches any of the meat becomes holy, and so if any blood is accidentally splashed on any clothing, it must be washed before it returns to the camp. Once the meat has been cooked, the clay pot in which it was prepared must be broken, or if the pot is made from bronze, it must be scoured and rinsed until it is clean. Scouring might well involve agitating the dirt in the pot with a bunch of twigs using hot water and ashes, or, given that they are in the desert, sand. Any male in the priest's family can join in with the meal, but if the meat comes from a sacrifice whose blood has been sprinkled at the curtain or daubed on the incense altar inside the holy place, it may not be eaten by anyone and should be burned instead. Priests and their families can eat the meat from guilt and sin offerings once the animal's blood has been appropriately splashed against the altar, as long as they remain within the perimeter curtain. The hide of any animal offered as a burnt offering belongs to the officiating priest, as does any bread or cake that has been fired or baked in a pan. All offerings of flour, whether dry or mixed with oil, should be shared among the priests. God has already explained how to make a fellowship offering, but now he goes into a little more detail. If the offering is to thank God for something, then bread loaves should be brought, as well as an animal to sacrifice. These should be made according to the rules for grain offerings, thick cakes of bread with oil mixed in, or flat loaves with oil spread on them, both with no yeast. An extra gift of bread baked with yeast is to be made, and one of each loaf is to be given to the priest who has splashed the blood from their meat offering against the altar. The meat must be eaten on the day it is offered, and not left over until the next day. If the offering is to formalise a vow, or a person simply wishes to make a voluntary offering, then the meat can be eaten that day, or left over until the next. If the meat is eaten on day three, it is seen as impure. The offering is negated, and the person eating the meat has to make reparations to God. Any meat from the sacrifice that touches anything that is unclean on its journey from the altar to the place where it is to be eaten should be thrown back on the fire and burned. As for the rest of the meat, anyone who is invited is free to enjoy it. If anyone unclean dares to eat the meat, they are to be cut off from the rest of the Israelite community. Similarly, anyone who comes into contact with an unclean animal and then eats the meat from the sacrifice should be cut off. It may seem dramatic, but the sense is that the meat is holy, and anything it touches, it makes holy. But the reverse is true too. If anything unclean touches the meat, it becomes contaminated. The belief is that holy things need to remain holy at any cost. And the more that the Israelites appreciate the difference between the sacred and the profane, the more they will understand and respect God. 
we're already seven chapters into the legal odyssey that is Leviticus. Israelites are being told how to make sacrifices, something modern Jews have not done in almost 2,000 years. The Jerusalem temple was finally destroyed by the Romans in the late 1st century AD, and animal sacrifices ceased being a part of Jewish worship around that time. Yet Leviticus's vibe still ricochets into the New Testament and beyond. Giving up material things for God is still alive and kicking today. Many people still tithe, and men and women even give up their entire material wealth by entering into monasteries and convents. The central message, however, is that God is worthy of being worshipped, and people being people, they need some rules to follow to make sure that they do it properly. And so, Moses remains at the entrance to the tabernacle and shares what he believes God has told him. Everything goes according to plan. That is, until two of Aaron's sons decide to take matters into their own hands. What happens to them is next. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Send any comments or feedback, please, to contact at holybible.com.